0: in the classroom over here learning the book of Hebrews. Bill Cumbie's teaching that. We encourage you, you know, if you, if you uh, would love to have that kind of a Sunday school time and kind of a group dynamic and, and, and hear some really good teaching on the book of Hebrews, we'd love for you to, to make a point of coming to that. Uh, they started in this Sunday, but you can jump in. That's no problem, and we'd love to have you do that. Um, we're in a series on First John and and a lot of times when I'm doing a, a, an expository book, I, I try not to jump around too much with other scriptures and, in, and then sometimes I'm like, oh, I hate that. I should, I, there's some good scriptures to bring in and uh, I like sometimes... I wish I could pursue some themes a little more deeply, and today we're going to do that. Today, um, I was thinking about the message that we've been learning, this, this idea that there's intimate fellowship with God that is possible for us, that that intimate fellowship with God is the basis for great joy in our lives, all right? And it manifests itself in love towards others, and John is developing these themes. And I started thinking about that, So, so... How do we struggle with it? What blocks it? Maybe in a sense, what activates it? And how is it taught in other passages? And so today we're going to take just a short little rabbit trail, a side trip. In our, it's, our series is on First John, but today we're going to kind of slide off and, and develop some themes that I'd like to talk about a little bit. Um, if you've ever been in a support group, you kind of know how they start. I mean, just imagine right now you're in a support group and I stand up in front of you and I say, hello, my name is Bob Mosley and I'm a wimp. And everybody says, hi, Bob. Right, right, yeah. Welcome to Wimps Anonymous or whatever it is. Um, uh, But I say that because it's true. I don't like scary. I am deathly afraid of scary movies. I can't watch scary movies. I just can't do it. I'll have nightmares for years if I do that. And, uh, you know, it's just, I've wet my pants. Just terrible things, terrible things. Um, See, this is a support group, so we're allowed to share and be vulnerable and transparent, right? I don't like scary movies. I don't like new weird food experiences. I have two brothers, they're missionaries to Portugal. And one time when I was over there visiting one of them, we were going to a house and he says, one time they fed me a stew that had monkey intestines in it. And I was just like, Steve, will they be offended if I throw up on their table? (laughs) Because just saying that makes me think that I might throw up. And, uh, Weird news, I'm not thrilled about that. I don't like strange experiences. I don't, I don't like things that, and, and I realize what it is, is is I like to be in control because I don't like things that get me out of my comfort zone. And, and, and that's, a, that's a thing I, need, I know I need to work on, but I don't like situations where I lose control are kind of frightening to me. And so it's whenever our family, whenever we go anywhere, even though my kids are grown, I automatically head for the driver's seat even if it's not my car, I try to head for the driver's seat because I like to be in control. And and that and that that is, I think many of us can feel that way. When when I was a little kid, uh, one time we were traveling on a family vacation, and it's one of my first memories. And and we had this uh, big Chevy Impala, and it had the bench seat up front and the bench seat in the back, and there were no seat belts. It was you know, and so I'm sitting in the middle of the front seat, and and my dad is listening to like the news, right? So I just start reaching up to change the knob to find music. And we're driving. All of a sudden, my dad grabs my hand. And he goes, what are you doing? And I said, Dad, I just wanted to change the, the channel. He goes, the driver of the car, that's his radio. And that's his heater. And you don't touch those things unless you ask permission of the driver of the car. And I was like, can I change the radio? yes. So then I started chasing. And, and, and I know that's kind of a weird little thing, but I'm still that way. If you get in the car with me and I'm listening to NPR, the news, just like my dad, I can't believe it. And I'm listening to it and you just reach over and start turning it, I'm gonna be, what are you doing? We're not in your car and you are not driving. And I just feel that way. I can't help it. And then there's this incredibly scary, if you have kids... There's this incredibly scary day where you walk out to your car and you give them the key and you get in on the passenger side and then your prayer life skyrockets, <laughs> skyrockets, right? When your kids are first learning, you got a seatbelt on, you wish there were more seatbelts and you really wish there was a brake pedal, right? Because I'm stomping and there's no brake pedal there. I remember my daughter Holly looking at me like, what are you doing? And I was like, nothing, I'm just sweating profusely. (laughs) Because until I gave each one of my kids car keys, I'm the one that's driving, I choose the destination, I choose the route, I choose the speed. You're in the passenger seat, okay? So you're a passenger, you're not in charge. Whoever's in the driver's seat is in control. One day Jesus came riding into Jerusalem and he came in town on, remember, a donkey. Not an impressive way. It's like driving a smart car into town, right? Okay, I just, uh, if you own a smart car, it's just, it just not, it's not super impressive. Let's just, just say that. Let's say that. It's not, you know. Okay, stop, read, read. Everybody, everybody was cheering for him Everybody had an agenda for him. They were saying, Hosanna, Jesus, come and take care of me. Hosanna, Jesus, do this, do that, do this for me, do that for me. They didn't all, none of them said, hey, Jesus, what is your idea of what should happen to this? What is your plan for this nation? No one asked him that. They assumed he was going to do what they want. They're saying, Jesus, do what I want. Come in and rearrange the circumstances of my life the way I want them to be. Jesus You do what I want to do. We'll all shout Hosanna to you. We'll all follow you. We're glad to have you in the car, Jesus. Just remember, you're in the passenger seat. These keys are our keys. This is our way. You're welcome in our car, but you're a passenger, not the driver. And that's the way it is for a lot of us, I think. And it can ebb and flow at different times of our lives. We find Jesus is pretty handy to have in the car with us because we might need him for something. And so, Jesus, I have a health problem. I need some help. Would you please work on that? We give him permission in our car. Jesus, you can turn the radio now. But I'm the one in charge. There's something hard going on at work, Jesus. I'd like it to be different. Could you please work on that? I'm feeling some anxiety. Could you give me peace of mind? I'm feeling sad. Could you bring hope and happiness into my life? I'm facing death. I want to make sure I'm getting to heaven. Jesus, will you do what I want? I want you in my car, but I don't want you driving. Because if Jesus is driving, I'm not in charge of my life anymore. And I like to be in control. So that's a scary thing. If Jesus is driving, I'm not in charge of my wallet anymore. Because if I put him in control, then it's no matter, uh, it's no longer a matter of, well, I got some extra money now, I'm feeling a little generous, I'll give. Things are a little tight, I'm not feeling so generous, I'm not giving I reserve the right to keep or give however I want. And now if it's his wallet, it's kind of scary. I'm not in charge of my ego anymore. I no longer have the right to satisfy my self-centered ambitions, what I want, what I think I should do. No, it becomes his agenda, his life. I'm not in charge of my mouth anymore. I don't get to gossip or flatter or cajole or deceive or rage or intimidate or manipulate or exaggerate. It's not my mouth because I gave him the keys and he's in the driver's seat. If I put Jesus in control, I lose control. It's just automatic. When I put Jesus in control, I'm still fully engaged. In fact, I'm more alive than I've ever been before. But it's not all about me anymore. It's not my life. It's his life. That's what becomes important. And so the question then is, who's driving my life. Who's driving your life? Have I surrendered fully or is Jesus just in the car? Is he riding with you or is he driving? Have you ever said, okay, here's the keys. I'm giving it to you. Because there's no way a human being can come to God that does not involve some surrender in their life. Surrender has to happen. And so, I want you to see, as we're talking about this whole idea of the, uh, of, of the way to joy, this joy that we've been talking about in 1 John, well, we have to decide to surrender. And Jesus talks about this a lot. He says, I tell you the truth. Oh, wait, he says, whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. All right? So he gives us this, this weird situation where losing is finding. It's counterintuitive, it goes against the way we think. I don't work hard at finding life, I just give it up. And he says, counterintuitively, if you give up, you will get. And that goes against what we've always, we always think. He says, I tell you a truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Now he's bringing up this concept of dying. He's saying dying brings life somehow. And again, it it goes against the grain. We we scramble and fight and, and, and grab for life, for happiness, for every little scrap of it we can get. And he says, that's not the way to it. You will always be frustrated that way. When you give up, then it happens. Then you get and life happens. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. He just keeps saying in different ways the same thing. He keeps saying it's giving up. It's letting go of things. And surrender is not, because this is the thing that can happen. You know, I, you, you remember hearing all the time, let go and let God. That's uh, a kind of a funny thing, and I'm not sure if I agree with it or not agree with it. But surrender is not passive. Part of God's will for your life is that you are actively involved in things. You make choices, that you be creative, that you initiate things, that you take responsibility. It's not the same as passivity. It's not being a doormat. It doesn't mean you allow people to walk all over you. It doesn't mean you just accept circumstances, you know, fatalistically. In fact, when you fully surrender your life, if you become a devoted follower of Jesus, often it takes more courage to do that than it does just to swim along in the current with everyone else following the status quo. It takes courage to go against the flow of what's going on in our world. I read this somewhere a long time ago and I just thought surrender is the glad and voluntary acknowledgement that there is a God and it is not me. There is a God and it's not me. Because we can live our life as if we're God. And we try to shape sometimes God to be more the way we want him to be. And we have to understand there is a God, it's not me. I don't, have, I don't get a vote on this one. His purposes are wiser than my purposes. His desires are better than my desires. Jesus did not come to rearrange the outside of my life to become the way I want it to be. He comes to rearrange the inside of my life the way God wants it to be. And in surrender, I start allowing him to do that. It's a revolution of the soul. I am no longer the center of the universe. When I say to him, I yield, I let go, I will do what you say, whatever it is. I will obey your word. I'm not driving now. That's what we're talking. And surrender, I, I know this is a hard word. That's why it's not passive. That's why it's, it, it, it's not being a doormat. Because surrender is an active word. It's a powerful word. It's a difficult word. In our culture, generally when spiritual things are being talked about, there's certain message, certain, certain themes or messages from the Bible that everybody loves. You can go to any forum, you can go to any 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 convention, any, any type of thing like that, and people love them. And it's it's things like this. It's saying, like, no matter how much you mess up, God still loves you. Everybody likes that message. I like that message. I love to preach messages about that. Uh, last week or the week before, we were talking about that a little bit, about this incredible love that God has for us, and I can't earn it. We just sang about that. I can't earn it, and I can't lose it. He just loves me because I'm his child. He just loves me, and I love that. And then we talk about surrender and giving things up, and I'm, I don't like that so much. That's harder. That's work. But we have to. You need to surrender. You are sinful and stubborn and stiff-necked. This is a nice therapy session, right? That's not the whole truth about you, but that is truth about you. You're self-centered and self-promoting, often in secret ways. Your de- your desires very often will be very much self-serving. And your ability to perceive your brokenness, your own sin, oftentimes is blinded by self-deception. That's why we need to be in the light, because the light exposes. If we're in the darkness, we can convince our things that things aren't. So convince ourselves things aren't so bad. And so when we talk about this, this isn't you need to bend the knee. You need to submit your heart. You need to confess your sin. You need to surrender your life to God. You need the light that we've been talking about in 1 John. We need it because it exposes things. It helps us to live in reality. And so this isn't one of those exciting messages where you go out and go, oh man, God, you love me so much, thank you. Thank you, Bob, for telling me all about it. No, this is where, this is where you can go, out and say, thanks. When I was growing up, I always tried to be liked. I mean, I think everybody tries that, but I tried very hard um, through athletics to be liked. I often was a clown in class trying to get attention and recognition. I like to think of myself as uh, stronger and more popular and more confident than I really was. Because the truth was I was kind of introverted and I was bookish and I was very insecure. But I didn't want anybody to know that. But the truth was, I was more bookish and more insecure than even I realized, because I was deceiving myself. As I grew up, I was trying to be like someone that I wasn't. I was trying to grab something I couldn't grab, and as I realized that it wasn't working out very well, I became more defensive, I became more hidden, I became more unhappy, I became more driven, I became more inauthentic in so many ways. So many ways, I didn't even know all the ways. And now I look back, you know, when you get older, you look back at yourself when you were in high school, oh, high school and middle school, and you just go, oh, I would have hated me. What a job! Well, you know, maybe you don't think that way, but I do. I do because I look back and I go, oh, what a total idiot I was. It was a false self. It was this misplaced pride and ego and junk that was in my life. And, and, and I still have a lot of surrendering to do. It's not like things are done. But one of the things I'm learning, I have a lot of dying to do, but one of the things I'm learning on the other side of dying is that walking in Christ can bring so much freedom in life. I'm freed from those things that I slaved under. And this cuts deeply to the issue of surrender. I cannot surrender to God unless I trust that he has my best interests at his heart. I can't do it otherwise. You know, Jesus has a lot to say about death to self. It's always death, to desires, and behaviors that would end up killing me anyhow. And And he says, I want you to die to those things so you can come alive and you can thrive and you can be the person I made you to be. Because life works better when Jesus is dying. And here's why. And this has been an interesting discovery over the years. You receive power through surrender that you cannot obtain any other way. There is a power in surrender that you can't get a hold of. You can't touch. You can't, it won't work. and It only comes through surrender. And isn't that, here we go. It's another counterintuitive thing. Power comes through surrendering. That's a crazy thought. It just doesn't work that way in our world. But in Luke 9, 23, Jesus said, he said to, then he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And key word is daily. One of the things I love about the word of God is God understands who we are. God knows that I can say, God, I surrender, I die to you. I'm taking up my cross and I'm following you. And he knows that five minutes down the road, I'll be like, no, this looks good. And I quit. I can give up or I can get distracted, you know, or I'm going to, whatever. And so he says, no, repeatedly, repeatedly. I understand. I'm telling you this because I understand how you are. You're going to need to do this constantly. Because here we are. We're all here on Sunday. And we tend to all agree with, everyone tends to agree with me on Sunday. It's the rest of the week that's the real problem, right? Because the rest of the week, Bob's not there and he's not talking to me. And I don't necessarily have the scriptures right there in front of me and I don't have it on a big screen. And suddenly I'm meeting someone who is a total jerk. And that person wasn't in church with me Sunday. So you didn't cover this, Bob. Which really what we're saying is, because what do I say, right? I can't say you didn't cover this, Bob. So we say, you didn't cover this, God. And so the rest of the week is different. And that's why he says it's got to be daily. We've got to keep working on it. Romans 12, something I know many of you have heard a hundred million times in youth meetings. Therefore, I urge you brothers in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. This is a key verse though. This is so important. It's an offering that is done daily. Why? Because I keep crawling off the altar. And Paul says, crawl back on. However, many times you need to. You got off, get back on. It's a constant thing. Because we deal with issues that we struggle with and that tend to take us, if you've ever been really mad at somebody, a kind of anger that can be difficult to deal with. When I was working at a different church, um, somebody had done something to me that I was deeply angry about and, and they treated me, I felt like they treated me very unfairly and it was kind of done in a very underhanded, kind of a sneaky way, like I'd been tricked and it was complicated. I didn't know how to respond but, but without even trying, my mind, my mind which can go insane sometimes, is filled with all kinds of thoughts of what a bad person this person is. This person is just a bad person. I don't, I'd written them off they did me wrong they're evil evil incarnate i just did this whenever i was around them right and i'm good because the bad person did it to me and my mind would feed on it and i would enjoy it i would savor it these thoughts these bad thoughts about this bad person have you ever i mean am i just talking to me and i didn't know what i should do but i knew what god said i shouldn't do you know, it's like I have conversations with God sometimes. And God says, Bob, there's some things you shouldn't do in this situation. Oh, yeah? Like what? Well, number one, thou shalt not murder. <laughs> okay, God, I'm not going to kill him. Number two, no violence. Okay, okay, I'll work with that. I'm, I'm not going to have him beaten up. Number three, no gossip. And I'm like, well, Lord, if I agree to no murder and no violence, can we keep gossip on the table? just for a bit, because I think it's fair. Two out of three is not bad. And surrender is saying, all right, God, I will handle this the way you say to handle it, even if it hurts me. And I don't know what that means right now in my life. I don't know what that means necessarily right now in your life. But I know what it doesn't mean. It means no gossiping, no blasting, no withdrawal, no evading, no deceiving, saying, okay, God, I'll do it your way. You're in the driver's seat. It's your car. It's your radio. So in that issue where the anger went deep, I struggled with surrendering and saying, God, and ultimately God did work it out. He, he worked in me. He worked in the other person. And there was some reconciliation but I found during that time, man, I could say, God, I'm going to do it right. I'm going to be right. I'm going to treat this person a certain way. And five minutes later, oh, I'd like to, though. And the, and the revenge fantasies would come right back. And I go, oh, I've crawled off the aisle. Get right back on daily. The light would expose it to me. Bob, where's your mind going right now? But I like going this way. Did you ever notice that Sometimes. You like thinking about inflicting harm on another human being? I hope some of you do, because I do. Sometimes I just think, oh, you know, God, I don't want to permanently hurt them. But a broken bone would serve them right, right about now. As long as I'm there to tell them why they got it. You know, this bone is from God, something like that. So the light exposes, Bob, that's not the way I want you to go. Your thoughts are going wrong. Oh, you're right, God. I confess it. I agree with you. This is the wrong way. Help me to reorder, to rethink. I've got to start thinking a different way. I've, gotta, I've got to take my mind off of that and go in a different direction. I've got to take up my cross and follow you. I surrender. See, it's not passive. It's not saccharine. It's not a doormat. It takes work sometimes. It's an active faith that surrenders. Sometimes it takes more courage to surrender, not less. And it's almost never, it cannot be just an internal event. It involves external actions because when you surrender, you're figuring out how you're going to deal with a situation or a person or something in your life that needs to change. And so it involves external acts. It involves actions. And usually they have a cost. But actions always follow surrender. So when we talk about this path to joy, you have to decide to surrender, but also you have to commit to something. I have it here, commit to servanthood, or maybe I should have said commit to serving actions that follow what's going on inside. I love this passage because this is so human. The mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. She wanted them to get the positions of power and rank. See, she was thinking kingdom thought. She was thinking Jesus was going to be king and the two top people are on either side of him. And she goes, let my boys be those two top people. Because that's the way the world worked back then. And it's the way the world works now. It's the same way the world works now. And she said, I don't want you, those other guys are losers. The other 10, they're losers. My boys, put them up, get them up where they can run things the way they're supposed to be run. Years ago, I went to speak in Germany for a week. And when I boarded the plane, and I was flying at the time, this was quite a while. At the time, it was a Swiss airplane. And Swiss Air was considered the nicest or one of the nicest airlines in the world at the time. But I noticed immediately that when we boarded, we were separated into two separate compartments. The people in the compartment up front were called first class passengers. The people in the compartment in the back, and you know, you know what you are no matter what they label it, right? Bluebirds, ravens, eagles, when it's reading groups. You know who's the ones that are slow, the right? So you go to the back and the lady says, welcome to coach. And I'm going, you mean second class. That's what you mean, because that's first class. So we're second class. And there was all the difference between the two. In first class, they got desirable seats and it was all about being served because everything is designed to reinforce who's going first class to make everyone else who is in second class wish and want to go first class at some point in the future. It's all about the money. It's all about the power. That's the kingdom of this earth. I noticed in the first class compartment, their meal came on China. It came on real China and they got really nice silverware and they had these goblets for their drinks that made them look like kings and queens. Our meals came in paper bags and you got a plastic knife and a plastic fork and you'd get a, you know, a cardboard cup for your drink. And I remember as the ladies walking by and I'd ordered a Coke, I said, could I have the whole can? And she said, No. And she just kept on moving. And I'm like, Swiss Air, wow, pretty nice. (laughs) In first class, they sat in thrones. They had these wide seats with long leg room and all kinds of free stuff. In coach, we got cramped seats with no leg room. And we got these little earbuds, these cheap earbuds that didn't even hardly work. You only heard out of one earbud. In first class, they got all kinds of nice things like moist towels that they put on their forehead. We stewed in our own sweat. That's all we did. And, And first class was separated from second class by a curtain, the iron curtain. It's like, it's like the Holy of Holies, and we're in the court of the Gentiles. We cannot. So I, was thinking, I always think of the night in, in, in uh, well, none shall pass. I just think of that. And in first class, they had their own facilities for just a few people. And, and for the rest of us, the cattle car, we had a couple of facilities, but there was a line. Sometimes there was a long line to go to the bathroom. And you can't go through the curtain. You're a Gentile. You're not allowed into the Holy. You know, you, you can't go through. I know. I tried. I just said, can I please just, there's a long line. And she and it was the Coke lady. No. I'm feeling like, do you know other words? One day Jesus leaves heaven. And the angels say to him, you'll be traveling first class, of course. And Jesus said, nope, I'm going coach. I'm a manger, a stable. I'll be a simple carpenter, a simple stonemason, actually. I'll have no money. The son of man has no place to lay his head. I'm going coach. And he came to earth, and no one recognized him as the Messiah. Why? Because nobody expected the Messiah to fly coach. And James and John come to him, and they say, we want to be in first class. They bring their mother along. Man, yeah, those guys. They bring them, hey, mom. Oh, yeah, I could just go on and on about that. And she says, can my boys sit in first class? We don't like these coach people you've been hanging around with. And when the ten heard this, they were indignant with the two brothers. The Jesus, Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And the high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, of whoever wants, to become, instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know, I've heard a couple of people talk about this. And one of the things I was thinking about is, the ten, why are they indignant? Why are they upset? Is it because they're committed to humility and servanthood and they're upset that what James and John is doing will damage their community? No. No, I don't think so. They're concerned about where they are in the pecking order. They're saying, how dare you think you're at the top? Who told you you're at the top? And we are so like chickens with a pecking order. There's a pecking order on the kingdom of this earth. And you can tell it in subtle ways, right? Who gives way when two people are talking at the same time? Whose jokes are laughed at even when they're not funny? Don't, no, no. You're just reinforcing my kid's opinion of my jokes. Don't, no. (laughs) You see this going on in offices. Who's allowed to ramble and pontificate during a conversation? And who's not allowed to? That tells you where the pecking order is. Who has to say I'm sorry and who doesn't have to say I'm sorry? Go to a high school. Oh, here we are, high school. Go to a high school cafeteria and you will find a table where the jocks and the cheerleaders sit all together. And no geeky guy sits there. Why? There's no rules against geeky guys sitting at that table, right? They just know I can't sit there. Because there's a pecking order. It's stronger by far than any law that any government could ever pass. No one violates it. Because everybody knows how you can be crushed when you do violate it. It crushes you. And that's the way things are on the kingdom of this earth. Look at verse 25 there. Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. That's the way it works. Now, I know occasionally there are people who break the, they, they, they don't do it. They don't follow the rules. They don't follow the, but they're rare, right? They're rare. And that's the way things go. And then Jesus says four words to me. These are incredible. In verse 26, not so with you he says that's the way the world works now flip it turn it over upside down change it totally counter intuitive go against what you've seen your whole life now that's a hard thing to do but he says not so with you not so with you first church Not so with you in your home, in your office, in your neighborhood, in your church, in your family. Not so with you. And then at the Last Supper, Jesus demonstrated what it looked like. He took the job that the lowliest was supposed to do. He took a towel and a basin of water and he washed feet. And we've all heard about that. But I think what's, what's very interesting here is, well, here's, here it is. And when he finished washing their feet, he put, on their clo- he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. He says, do you understand that I flipped it? Do you understand this is what my kingdom is about? You guys want to sit at the top positions? And here's what's interesting. We do know that at the Lord's Supper, at the Passover, they were still arguing amongst themselves of who was the greatest of them. They were like, no, dude, it's me. I'm in charge. I do this. I do this. No, it's me. You know, like Peter saying, no, it's me. Remember when he said, you spoke well, Peter, what you said was really right? And they're like, yeah, but the other times he said, you're a dope. You know, and they get to go back and forth. Who's the greatest? Who's the greatest? He says, do you understand what I'm telling you? I'm flipping it over. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Now we know, we know uh, uh, from history in, in, in Jewish, with a Jewish rabbi, if he had disciples, the disciples, whenever they went somewhere, the disciples, one of the disciples would wash the rabbi's feet and then all the other disciples' feet. And often this was a rotating thing that they did. You know, they would take turns being the person who was the foot washer. And they would always wash the rabbi's feet. Then they would wash the other disciples' feet. And then theirs last. It was something that was commonly done. But it didn't happen here. You notice that? It didn't happen here. Jesus has 12 disciples and none of them were willing to be the foot washer. None of them were willing to humble themselves that low. And Jesus says, do you understand what I've done? Do you get it? I've flipped it. I've flipped it. You want to be the greatest? Start washing feet. You think you're at the top of the heap, the top of the pecking order? Start washing feet. Start serving. You think it's beneath you? That means you should be the one doing it. Because to follow Jesus is to serve. He says to follow me is to serve. To especially serve in a culture that would say these people are beneath you. You don't have to wash their feet. That's when you really need to do it. That's when you have to say I choose to do this. Because this is what Jesus said. Jesus is saying I chose to do this. So go and do the same. And so that thinking, that flipping it over, that whole counterintuitive idea of how the kingdom of God works. If I I want life, then what I need to do is pursue Jesus. And when I pursue Jesus, life comes. If I pursue life, I'll never quite get it. I'll never quite get it. I had a friend many years ago, um, and he was one of these guys. He's, he's an entrepreneur, and he could just make money somehow. I don't know how he did it all the time, but he just found ways to make money. And so when we were in high school, he started a couple of companies and was doing stuff. He, he, he started a house cleaning deal, and he started a car t- detailing deal. And so you got this, you know, you're, you're like 16 years old, and this guy has a Corvette. He's, he's, he's in high school, and he has a Corvette, and his parents didn't put a dime into it. And then he, he liked electronic stuff. And so this was, you know, this was BC. This is before cell phones. This is way back in the old days. And, and he goes, I figured something out. Look what I did. He, he had a remote control plane and he rewired his car. So we're standing there and he goes, watch, I'm going to start my Corvette. I'm turning on the heat now. And this, I was just like, this is a miracle you could make a million dollars and he could have if he uh, you know he was so far ahead and so and so then then he had a boat and then he had a race boat and then he had an airplane i had a high school friend that built an airplane and so one day we're outside and i'm talking with him and he'd gotten his airplane he, he lit, there was a big parking lot so the wings weren't on it at the time so he just started up and we drove it around the parking lot like that like idiots it was so fun <laughs> right and i was just like I, and his name was Bobby i said bobby man dude that's the coolest thing in the world. I mean, you have everything. And he looks at me and goes, It's not enough. I want more. And he said, I think I'm always going to want more. And that hit me. He'll never be satisfied. He'll never be satisfied unless he meets Jesus. He'll never be satisfied. And that's the way we are, it's counterintuitive. If I pursue life, if I pursue for me, I never quite get it. I'm frustrated. I get glimpses. I get little bits, little bits of happiness, little bits of joy, but it's not quite it. If I pursue Jesus, he says, you'll find the life that you were made for. So that somebody like Paul could say, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live yet Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul says I've died and now I live and those aren't just words he really means something there this really happened and he says my false self my self-centered desires my hiddenness and sin they were crucified with God and now Jesus because of what you've done for me through the power of the Holy Spirit I'm gonna live I'm gonna live and so here's the question for us who's in the driver's seat? I mean, this is an an obvious illustration. But who's in the driver's seat? Have you surrendered your life to Jesus? And Jesus will be relentless about this. Because he was in his day. So a woman gets caught in adultery and Jesus says, I don't condemn you, now go, sin no more. Surrender, surrender, surrender your sexuality to me, your habits, your thoughts, your actions. If you need help, if you can't do it and you know you can't, then bring it to me, and the light will expose, and power will be, will be given, and you can, you can surrender. A lot of times it's about money. The rich young ruler came to Jesus, and, and Jesus knew exactly where he needed to surrender. So Jesus said, give me your wallet. And the guy's like, no, nah, no, not that far. Not that far. But then we see a man named Zacchaeus. He surrenders, and what does he do? He basically says, Jesus, here's my wallet. I'm giving half of everything I own to the poor and I'm gonna reimburse four times as much as what I cheated people out of when I collected taxes. He said, oh, I, man, wallet, yes, here it is, take it. And so he's asking us to surrender. Maybe it's relationships. You ever tried to control another person, like a spouse? And you're sitting in this message and you're thinking, I hope he's listening. He's not taking notes, and that was something he needed to write down, right? I hope she's listening. Or maybe a child, trying to control a child, and thinking, boy, when I get home, I'm going to tell my kid to listen to that message on the website, because that's what they need. And that's what I do. I have to give up trying to control other people. I have to give up trying to control my future. I have to give up trying to have things my way. And for all of us here, it may be a grudge. It may be a habit. It may be an attitude. It may be a job. Jesus understands your struggle, and he wants you. He wants you to know what the victory is in that situation. So right now, I'm going to, we're, going to, we're going to pray. We're going to end and we're going to pray. But I'm going to just take a few, just not long, because I know how long, and we're just going to all be quiet. Because this is what I want you to think about. I want, it, I want you to think about, okay, God, is there something I need to surrender? And, and maybe it's your whole life. Maybe you've never made that decision for Jesus Christ of, of seeing that you're a sinner and he paid for your sins. And he rose from the dead to prove that he had the power. And now he asks us to commit our lives to him. But maybe you've done that. And now it's just saying, God, is there something? Is there something you want me to surrender? And then being willing to do it. And, and, and I know this is easy stuff for me to say. But it may be that for some people right now, God is really tugging at your heart. There's something that you're like, I don't even have to ask him what it is. It's, I, I, can, I know it, I know it, I know it. And you may be thinking, Bob, look, yes, fine. You're saying surrender, but you don't understand what this is and what this does to me and what this means to me and how this controls. I do. But even more importantly than that, Jesus does. And he's asking you if you're willing to surrender. And maybe it's your time or your money or your will or your future or your desire, whatever it is. And we're going to take just a few moments and then I'll close in prayer. Let's pray. Father, you know every heart in this room. You know what we struggle with. You know our pains and our joys. You know our hopes and our fears. You know us intimately. And so we can't hide from you. And we try so hard. We think we can get away with it, but we can't. And so, Lord, as, we, um, as we're here this morning and maybe doing business with you, pray that you would work, you would reveal yourself, you would show yourself at work in our lives. You would encourage us to know that you love us and that you're working in and through us. But Lord, help us to have the courage to make the tough decisions sometimes and do the hard thing. Help us to be willing to surrender and then to act on that surrender by serving and loving others, especially those who maybe have hurt us or those who are below us, we feel. Help us to flip this world upside down and to change it by showing this incredible love that you have for us and showing how it works in our lives. God, we need power, and that only comes from you. And so we pray that you would do that. And we thank you in advance, in Jesus' name, amen.